Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to season two of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, where I have with me the king of the indies, the fallen angel, Chris Daniels, who has held over 18 titles across various companies, including TNA, Ring of Honor, and New Japan, to name a few, and has his own comic book done by Oya oh yeah Comics, who apparently I sent my mom and my dad to go get his autograph on that amazing print. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. You've been wrestling for over 20 years. How did you initially become interested in wrestling? I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching wrestling as a kid. I grew up in North Carolina watching guys like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors. And once I graduated college, I was following up on my theater degree. I was acting in Chicago and having to find a school. I told my wife if the acting thing didn't work out that I would be a pro wrestler, sort of tongue-in-cheek. And she found this school that was about a half hour from where I lived. And she set up an appointment for me to meet the guy that ran it. And his name was Sam DeCero. That was Windy City Pro Wrestling. And she said after I met with Sam, she said I looked like I had been hypnotized, like I had stars in my eyes. So there was a point where I decided to give it a try just to say I did it, whether I washed out or not. So I started training in January of 93. And by April of 93, I was wrestling matches. And training is the way to go in today's age. And we're talking back in 93. How do you feel your theater degree really helped you to grasp the concept of wrestling and really help you deal with the psychology of it all? Well, it certainly made me comfortable to be the center of attention. A lot of guys, when they start wrestling, they forget that they're doing it in front of a crowd. So they just concentrate on the moves and the person that's wrestling in front of them, instead of understanding that at its heart, it's a performance. So, like, I learned very quickly, enunciate my movements and enunciate my feelings to the back row. And basically, wrestling is the same as theater in the round. I understood that right away, and it made me very comfortable in terms of how I performed and what I did. And that theater degree sort of helped me understand the idea of getting on a microphone and talking and trying to tell parts of the story that are important when you're cutting a promo. And now you just mentioned that your training was, what, three? four months yeah i mean the actual learning how to do things was that long but the truth of the matter is you do most of your learning in professional wrestling on the job once you wrestle matches in front of fans that's where the majority of your learning takes place because that's where you find out what works and what doesn't work in front of a crowd i mean you can learn how to do moves in the sterile environment of a school where it's just you and the guy training you and maybe a couple other people training with you. But you don't know the things that work or don't work until you try it in front of a crowd and see how people react. The first four months, just learning how to do the moves, it took me that long, but I'm still continually learning and adjusting and figuring out what works and what doesn't in front of people. And now when you made your debut and during that first year, I mean, you had an amazing push where very early on, you won the WCW lightweight title. Being so new to this, what was that like? And how did this opportunity come about? And how did you feel being so green in the industry at this point? Well, very fortunate. I think the people that ran Windy City at that point, they saw that I was dedicated in terms of coming in and trying to get better. I had the advantage of living very close to my school. So for the first year, year and a half, I was in the school four days a week, four to five hours at a time. So they saw that, and I think that was part of the reasoning behind putting their lightweight championship on me as early as they did. You know, I was a fresh face to their audience, and they saw that potential in me to try and grow the fan base that way. So I was very fortunate. I don't think that everybody's experienced to go in and win the first title match they ever wrestle in. So I don't tell people that it's the usual occurrence, but it just happened that way for me. And do you feel that being that you were the champion and that you were kind of put as the centerpiece of this company that really helped accelerate your growth learning experience and 
really help develop you into the superstar that you've become? Not necessarily. I wasn't the main champion. I mean, there were a couple different champions, so I wasn't the single champion of the company. At that point, they had different weight classes, so I was the equivalent of the cruiserweight champion. So I felt like, athletically speaking, my matches were a little more fast-paced, and I sort of developed a certain style in that role. But I wasn't really given the opportunity to be the main focus of the company at that point. I was really just the focus of that weight division. And now, while with Windy City Wrestling, you won several tag team titles across various promotions with Kevin Quinn, including at the NWA 50th anniversary show. What was it like teaming up with him? How did that team form? And what was it like winning various belts in different promotions all across the country? Well, I had the good fortune of training with Kevin early on. He and I almost started at the same time. We became very good friends and had the opportunity not just to tag in Windy City, but also in Puerto Rico for WWC and then doing stuff on the independent scene for the NWA Midwest. So I was very fortunate that I had that opportunity. Like Kevin was a very good partner to have, and he helped me learn the ins and outs of tag team wrestling. I was very lucky to have that experience with him so early on in my career as well. And obviously, your wife found this school. How thankful are you to her that she really found this opportunity and that you ran with it? Very. If it wasn't for her, finding that school changed my life. I was very fortunate that I found something that I could sort of latch on to. And then I've been very lucky to have the success that I've had. I've worked hard for it, but at the same time, I've had a lot of breaks that have gone my way. And so that work and that good fortune has helped support my family over the last 25 years. And now you've also wrestled a few matches in ECW. Everybody knows ECW. What was it like having even one match in ECW? I had very good experience. I met a lot of good people there. Unfortunately, living on the West Coast at that point with their financial difficulty sort of precluded me from being a bigger part of ECW. But I had a very good experience there and having the opportunity to meet Taz and Bubba Ray and Devon Dudley, Tommy Dreamer, you know, in the future, working with them throughout the WWE and TNA. I was very lucky that I had that opportunity. I wish I had the opportunity to do more there, but like I said, just the situation didn't merit it. It was sort of a blip in my career, but certainly a good experience. Even just you wrestling in ECW, it's such a legendary promotion. Is it one of those things that you kind of crossed off your bucket list as a wrestler? Yeah, I guess looking back at it, at the time I was disappointed that it couldn't turn into a, a more of a long-term position there. But knowing what I know now about the history of the company and where they were, I sort of understand it better. You know, at the time, I felt like I was doing well and I was getting good feedback from the people behind the scenes for the few appearances that I did have. And, you know, I was disappointed that I wasn't given the opportunity to be more of a part of it, but that's just the way those situations went at that time. And around this time, you also wrestled in Japan for Michinoku. What is the story of you going to Japan to wrestle? Well, I had a friend of mine, Kevin, knew someone named Richard Quinones, who was a promoter in Puerto Rico, who also had a lot of ties to the Japanese independent scene. And actually, when the WWE started the light heavyweight division, Victor was instrumental in bringing Taka Michinoku and the other members of Kayantai to the WWF. And so... It was through him that I got the opportunity to wrestle Paka Mishinoku on Shotgun Saturday Night a few times that I did. 
And then working with Taka got me the opportunity to wrestle a short tour for Mishinoku Pro in Japan. And then once I had done that tour, the next tour was the Massman tournament that they did every four years. And they offered me a position to come and do that particular tour, which was six weeks long. And they created this character for me called Curryman. And now, obviously, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is very different in Japan than in America. Curryman was obviously part of that entire thing. How do you feel that Japanese wrestling is different than American wrestling, both physically, athletically, and then culturally? I feel like, first and foremost, Japanese wrestling is considered more of a sport than it is here in the States. It's looked upon with a little bit more respect in terms of it's almost looked at the same way that we look at football or baseball. The wrestlers are looked at as actual sports stars over there. Even on the independent level, wrestlers are given a little bit more respect, culturally speaking. And then as different as the fans treat it in terms of how they react to it, they're much more subdued in terms of the noise they make during the show themselves and much more respectful of the wrestlers' efforts. At the end, it's still entertainment to them, and so they go and watch it with that in mind. And you were part of this Mask Man League tournament where there was a lot of respect around the mask and that entire segment. How did you feel that you received that respect being that you were an American in Japan? Well, first of all, I felt like the first thing I did was I showed the Japanese wrestlers what my work ethic was like. I trained as often as I could. I helped put up the ring and helped with the company as best I could. And then I worked out a lot. I trained a lot. And they saw my work ethic behind the scenes and also in the ring. So I think once I earned the respect of the Japanese wrestlers, the Japanese fan base followed suit. They saw how hard I was working in the ring to try and be a part of the company. And so that was how it went around. I just earned the respect by going out there and doing my best every match that I had. And speaking about the indies, how did it work that everybody pitches in and sets up the ring and really helps to promote the promotion? How did that work with you? Well, at that point, we all rode the same bus. We got off the bus and we would load the ring truck into the building and just build the ring. And that was just part of the gig. So, I mean, I went in and did my part. And the entire card, whether you were the main event or the opening match, you helped set up the ring, you helped set up the building, you helped set up the merchandise tables. And then once that was done, you went and you worked out. I understood that right away, and that was part of the job. And do you feel that you setting up the ring and really helping set up the entire promotion made you want to work harder for the promotion? I just figured that was how things were done over there. I was happy to jump into the system and be a part of that the way that they treated everybody else. I wanted them to know that whatever my background was, I was happy doing the same thing that everyone else was doing and being a part of it. I didn't want them to think that just because I was an outsider, I felt like I was above all that. I went in and did what I felt was the role of one of the guys, which was to help out and and to help get stuff put together. And now you obviously came back from Japan. How did the Japanese style affect your style when you came back to America? I don't know if it actually affected it that much. I think that a lot of the independent style in the U.S. was very similar already, especially to the guys that were working what you consider the cruiserweight style. I felt like the guys that were my size or comparable to that, they were already wrestling a style sort of conducive to their height and weight. So I just sort of followed suit with that. The way that I wrestled in Japan, I sort of did that same sort of thing in the U.S. And I saw a lot of guys on the U.S. independent sort of follow suit. 
And now one of the promotions that you wrestled for was Ultimate Pro Wrestling, which has a very famous video that's out that features you, Kazarian, Samoa Joe, and the prototype. You might be a 16-time world champion, I don't know, training and wrestling. What was it like working with these guys? I tried to take advantage of the fact that UPW had ties with the WWF at that point, so I worked on the shows when I was available. I got an opportunity to work with John Cena when he was there and got a chance to work with guys like Edge and Christian and William Regal when he came through and got a chance to talk with Jim Ross and Bruce Pritchard and sort of stay in their in their sideline while I was trying to get an opportunity with the WWF. And out of this, how did your friendship with Kazarian and Samoa Joe really develop? Just proximity, man. We were always on the same shows, not only doing the stuff at UPW. Those guys started doing a lot of stuff on the independent scene in the Northeast. We would be on the same show, so we often traveled together. And that was how it came around. The three of us would work a lot together. We'd work on the same shows. And just having that time to travel with each other sort of formed that bond. And now you work tremendously on the independent scene. And you have a title, and you're referred to as one of the king of the indies. As you've had several matches in AWP, Eastern Coast Wrestling Association, New Japan Wrestling, NWA, and Ring of Honor, to name a few promotions. And you have delivered amazing matches in all these promotions. What makes you deliver such great matches, such as the Super 8 tournament, the King of Indies tournament is another one that really were phenomenal matches. The thing that I focused on was the ability to adapt to the people that I was working with. I felt like one of the strengths that I had as a wrestler was being able to adapt and be able to wrestle with whoever I was brought in to wrestle against. I tried to be comfortable no matter who the promoters asked me to work with, and that way they were comfortable putting me in different situations with different wrestlers because they knew that no matter who they put me in the ring with, I was going to go out and work hard and have an entertaining match and be worth the amount that they spent to bring me in and promote me. So that to me was the quickest way to become a commodity to a promoter was for them to be comfortable enough to put me in the ring with whoever they wanted to, whether it was the first match or the main event, and be comfortable knowing that I would go out and perform at a certain level. And another match that really lives up to this title is the NWA 53rd Year Show, where you wrestled against AJ Styles. What was that match like for you? Well, it was the first time I met AJ, and just meeting him for that very first time, you know, I got a feel that he and I were very similar in terms of how we put matches together and the way we wanted to work. So I felt a chemistry with him right away, and I think it showed in the match, knowing that it was our first time wrestling against each other to go out and have the match that we did. It was sort of a sign of things to come with working with AJ. We got to talk about it because AJ Styles, he had the most amazing 2016 year in WWE and the two of you are very close and you've been for several years and I still think you are. How did this friendship develop to what it is now? Once we had that match in Florida, it wasn't soon after that promotions around the world started to book myself and AJ against each other all over. So the next one we had was in the King of Indies tournament in California and then soon after that, Ring of Honor booked he and I in a singles match. And slowly but surely, many promotions around the U.S. and around the world booked AJ Styles versus Christopher Daniels as a marquee match. So having that experience of traveling with AJ and working with AJ and just building up the relationship with him like that, slowly but surely turned into a friendship. And then once we were working in TNA and seeing each other as often as we did, 
we became friends and remained that way. And now prior, because we're going to talk about TNA, because your TNA career is arguably is one of the most amazing TNA careers out there. But prior to that, you had a few WWE tryouts and a few matches in WWE and a few matches in WCW. How did those tryouts and those few matches come about? Well, the WWE stuff came about because of Jim Cornette. I got to be on his radar, and he got me the opportunity not just to do some of the syndicated stuff like Shotgun Saturday Night, but he also got me the opportunity to go through the Dory Funk Dojo at that point was held at Titan Towers. So I got the opportunity to work with Dory Funk and Dr. Tom Pritchard and train in the same camp with Kurt Angle and Dr. Death, C. Williams, and Test. And from there, I got to do a lot of dark matches with them and have different opportunities there. The WCW thing came about. Kevin Sullivan gave me the opportunity to wrestle a dark match when Nitro was in Los Angeles. And he offered me a contract in January of 2000. And it wasn't soon after that that I had signed and had my first contract with WCW that began in April of that year and went on until October of 2000. And once I had the relationship with WCW, I got a second opportunity in January 2001, and that was the match that I had on Nitro. And I was offered another contract that lasted until the company was bought by WWF. And obviously, with the company being bought and things changing in the wrestling world, how did you feel at the time that things were going and what direction do you feel they were going in from a business perspective? Me personally, I was disappointed with the second contract with WCW only because it was a developmental deal and I had to wait because the match that I had, they did an injury angle with me. And so I was basically sitting at home waiting to get the go-ahead to come back to TV and figure out a role for me when WWF bought WCW. And at that point, WCW and ECW had closed, so there was sort of a vacuum in terms of professional wrestling where there was sort of a missing component for wrestling for a certain fan base. And it wasn't long after that, probably another year, that TNA and Ring of Honor both started to try and fill that void that was left by WCW and ECW. And now to talk about TNA, where you spent a good amount of your career so far. And how did you get recruited or find TNA or get sought after or get booked? How did that all occur? I had known Bob Ryder and Jeremy Barash from WCW. And after WCW had closed, they had worked with Andrew McManus to do the World Wrestling Association. And one of the shows that they did was the Las Vegas pay-per-view where I wrestled in a six-way with AJ Styles and Nova and Loke and Sharkboy and Tony Marmalade. And so it was after that that they approached me to be part of TNA. So I was on the third and the fourth pay-per-view that TNA did from Nashville. And at that same time, I was doing Mishinoku and New Japan. So I wasn't in TNA very frequently up until the end of 2002 when they offered me a full-time position uh, and that was the beginning of the Triple X team with Loki and Elix Skipper. And now before we dive into that you're an avid comic fan and this is the question that every comic fan wants to know is that what was the secret comic trade that took place in TNA with Samoa Joe, Homicide was involved in that, I don't know if CM Punk was involved in that, and I don't know who else was involved in that, but how was that set up and what comics were you trading back and forth all throughout your tenure in TNA? 
Well, it wasn't so much of a trade as just getting guys reading different things. Like, I know one of the first things that I knew Punk was fan of was Brian Michael Bendis. And so I remember one of his birthday gifts, I got him Daredevil trade paperback. I knew Joe was a big fan of Avengers and Homicide was reading stuff. It was just a matter of just pointing guys in different directions, getting them reading stuff. It wasn't a specific physical trade as much as it was just like-minded guys just commenting on the stuff that they like to read. So was it exclusively Marvel, or was DC allowed in there and some Image Comics allowed in there? Well, both guys would read what they liked. I was a Marvel guy, first and foremost. I mean, I would read some DC and some Image, but the majority of my stuff was Marvel just because that's what I grew up enjoying. Now, getting back to Triple X, which has had some fantastic matches with Elix Skipper, was a part of that, and Loki. How was this team put together with TNA? Well, the idea at that point, the three of us were doing different tenures with different Japanese companies. So they put the three of us together with the idea that because we were working in different companies over there, we weren't always going to be on the same Japanese schedule. So at some point, one or both of us, or one or two of us would be available to wrestle while the third was on tour. So that was the idea at first. The first couple months, we were all together and the three of us were going in and out and then slowly but surely it turned into a situation where Elix and I became the main team because he had suffered a shoulder injury and so while he was off healing Elix and I ended up becoming the main focus of the team stayed that way until the team split up and now you had some brutal matches with America's most wanted and a few that lasted over a year back and forth trading titles we briefly had a team up with team Canada to fight the good fight, go America, go. How do you feel that this feud played out? You traded tag partners. I mean, everything was in this feud. How do you feel about it? Well, I thought it was definitely a very entertaining storyline that went through TNA for a good long while. And it culminated in the steel cage match with us against America's Most Wanted. The first cage match on the pay-per-views in Orlando. And I think for a period of time, that was considered one of the best tag team matches and definitely one of the best cage matches in that company's history. You know, I was very proud of the work that we did and thought it was a great ending for Triple X, the way that we went out, battling to the very end like we did. And while this feud was going on, I mean, you faced Jerry Lynn and Amazing Red, and Jerry Lynn is a legend in the X Division, which resulted in kind of a mini feud and even a two-on-one handicap match for the tag team titles. How do you feel that these matches played out and what is it like wrestling Cherry Lynn and even Amazing Red is fantastic as a wrestler. Both of those guys were incredible to work with. Cherry Lynn was someone that I respected for a very long time before I got the opportunity to work with them as often as I did in, in TNA. And Red was the same way. He was someone that I met in ECWA and knew was very talented. And once TNA started and they decided to make Red one of the focal points, having the chance to work with him as often as I did was a pleasure. And obviously Triple X broke up and you became more of an X Division wrestler. And you won the title several times and you wrestled AJ Styles, Chris Sabin, Samoa Joe, Matt Bentley, to name a few people throughout the entire company. What was it like being in this fast-paced, exciting, high-flying move wrestling environment for you? Well, I think that was one of the, the linchpins of TNA at that point was the X Division. So being able to be a part of that division during that period of time, I feel like all of us put forth our best effort, and that was one of the reasons that TNA became as popular as it did. That was certainly one of the reasons why people were watching the show 
the word of mouth about TNA grew a lot because of what happened in the X Division. So there's a certain feeling of pride knowing that we brought a lot of people's attention to TNA and kept it there. And now in the X Division, you wrestled AJ Styles and Samoa Joe, who you developed massive friendships with. What is it like wrestling both these guys, and what is it like wrestling your friends? Having that opportunity to build that friendship with those guys and then go out there and be trusted with the main event of a pay-per-view, that, that certainly meant a lot to the three of us. And knowing that feud and specifically the first three-way that we did at Unbreakable in 2005, to this day is still considered one of the best matches in the company's history there's certainly a feeling of pride in that respect and obviously i mean you've had huge feuds with aj styles during this time as well as during your later time in tna what is it like that tna trusted you and aj styles enough to carry this feud for so long and know that you two are going to deliver an amazing match no matter what the storyline is that was specifically it they knew that if they put us out there we were going to deliver and so it meant a lot that they would put that opportunity in our hands. And that period of work that AJ put out, knowing that I was one of his top opponents, and over the years of TNA, knowing that the feud between he and I was such an integral part of the history of that company, I'm very proud of all the work that we both did. And now, obviously, TNA was originally only on pay-per-view, and then it eventually changed to TV. How do you feel that that changed the quality of the matches, as well as what did it mean for you as a wrestler? Well, I mean, it's certainly the opportunity to be on cable television every week. It raised the spotlight, my spotlight, to a wider audience, and it got more people aware of us. So, like, that meant a lot in my career to have that opportunity to wrestle in front of a million-plus fans every week. And the period of time where they gave me the opportunity to be a integral part of the storylines, especially the stuff with AJ and the stuff tagging with Frankie, I feel like every time they gave us the opportunity, we went out and we delivered and we put something out there that people still remember. And so I was just happy that they gave me that opportunity and that it went as well as it did. And now speaking of Frankie, apparently Kazarian, for everybody who doesn't know, was on the podcast during season one. And apparently he said that suicide owes him money. How do you feel? Because I heard that suicide doesn't pay his bills when he's on the road. He doesn't owe me as much as he owes Frankie, but he certainly owes me something. So if I ever see that guy, I will try and get what is owed. After he disappeared, I'm not sure what happened to him. I'm still on the hunt farm, so there's a rumor that Suicide's real identity was Angelina Love, so I'm looking into that as we speak. I heard he became a cruiserweight wrestler. Yeah, I had heard some people thought it was Great Khali. There was a period of time where he was the front runner to be the true identity of Suicide. I can't comment on that. Like I said, I'm in the hunt even to this day. It's understandable. We're all in the hunt. And now you were gone for TNA for a little while, and then you came back with Fortune. What was it like being back with Fortune and really taking AJ's spot when he was injured? It was a good situation for me and being able to come in where I was working against guys like Willie Ray and Gunner. That was my first opportunity really working in depth with Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan. So that sort of led to the opportunities with Frankie and myself as that influence. So it was a good situation. Bad influence. We got to talk about that because the way the two of you and the heels that the two of you were coming out with martini glasses and suits and all the pop culture references, what was the brainchild behind that? We decided to just try anything and give everything a shot. 
and I'm an El Apeltini or wearing the scarves or wearing the Marvel t-shirts. All of that was just us doing anything we thought was entertaining and funny and, and that would catch people's eye and get people talking. And obviously as Bad Influence, you had several opportunities, both in wrestling and outside of wrestling, where you won the tag team titles twice. What was it like winning the belt with Frankie? Just knowing that they trusted us with being the focus of the tag team division was great. I felt like Frankie and I, we certainly went out there and were the most entertaining part for a good while. And I think it showed people were talking about us whether we had the tag straps or not. And so it was a good situation. We went out there and had fun and became entertaining and became something that people wanted to see on the show more often. And while you were part of Bad Influence, you created a comic book through All Yeah Comics. How did that come about? And obviously being a comic fan, what was that like for you while being involved in this tag team in TNA? Frankie and I met Art Baltazar and Franco, the guys behind All Yeah Comics, in 2011 at San Diego Comic-Con. They were promoting Tiny Titan Superman Family Adventures that they had done at D.C., and it wasn't long after that that they started their own imprint called Aya Comic and created Action Cat and Adventure Bug. So when their Kickstarter was going on for that, I supported that and got an opportunity to read those books. Just on a lark, I decided to write a story of myself and Frankie interacting with those characters and completely unsolicited, I sent it to them and wanted to know if they were interested in doing something. And to my surprise, they were thrilled to do it. They decided to publish it themselves. And right when my contract with TNA expired, we put the first book, Christopher Daniels and Kazarian Russell Oh Yeah Comics. We released that in April of 2014, I believe. So over the last two years, we've had the book at different signings and different shows, and I've had a lot of good response over it. And being a comic fan, you must feel great that you're now part of the industry, not just as a fan, but as a comic creator due to this book. I'm very proud of the book and the fact that no matter what, I'll always have created something. I hope I get an opportunity to do more books in the future as ideas come to me. But I'm very fortunate that Hart and Franco enjoyed what I wrote and have the ability to get it made the way they did. You know, I couldn't ask for two better guys in terms of helping to create an all-ages comic book. I feel like those guys are the Pixar of all-ages comics. And you put Art Baltazar and Franco's name on something, carries a bit of prestige with it. The fact that these guys are Eisner-winning cartoonists and comic creators certainly benefited me to be attached to a project with them. And obviously you left TNA after feuding with several wrestlers. What was the impetus for you leaving the company? My contract expired, and they just decided to go in a different direction. That was the long and short of it, really. I think that anybody who's a wrestling fan knows this, but TNA, for years, and possibly when you're wrestling, and you don't have to comment on that, was having money issues that really affected certain wrestlers. And it was just evident now with Dixie Carter being pushed out and everything. Do you feel that you left at the right time? I was fortunate the way it went down the way it did because if they had offered me a contract, I probably would have stuck around just because at that point I was trying to make the best of the situation that I was given. By them deciding not to renew my contract or not to offer me a new contract, it forced me to look elsewhere. And by the time I got in with Ring of Honor, that was when they started having their difficulty leaving Spike TV, going through Destination America, and ending up at Pop. And then the financial difficulties that they went through in the last year, year and a half, I might have been stuck in that if things had gone differently. But fortunately for me, 
the opportunity with Ring of Honor rose, and I was lucky enough to sign with them and be a part with them when all this went down with TNA. I think this is your third return to Ring of Honor, and you've done amazing in Ring of Honor every single time you've been there, especially this run as The Addiction, which was the renaming of you and Frankie. What was the tag team competition like in Ring of Honor? It was very different. When we were in TNA, we were the only real team that meant to stay together as a team. That period of time, they put a bunch of different singles wrestlers together to face us, and that was just the situation in TNA. But when we went to Ring of Honor, there were teams like Red Dragon and the Briscoes and the Young Bucks and Rapungi Vice and All Night Express came back most recently and War Machine was there. All of these great tag teams were there, and um, we were very fortunate that Ring of Honor gave us the opportunity as the team to come into the company and felt like that first few months were very important for us to go in and prove that we belonged. So having the first couple of matches with Red Dragon, I felt was a good litmus test for us, and I felt like we worked very well with those guys, and we proved that we could come into Ring of Honor and make a name for ourselves right away. And now, things have just recently changed in Ring of Honor for you, as the Bullet Club has come in, and that you turn face and Frankie turns on you. When can we expect the match that people have been wanting to see for a long time? Kazarian versus Daniels. Well, I don't know. Honestly, the truth of the matter is my main focus, even with Frankie turning on me, is wrestling for the World Heavyweight Championship on March 10th. On March 11th, I might think about whether or not Frankie and I have a date in the Ring of Honor ring. But right now, my main focus, my only focus, is trying to become the world champion for the very first time. I'm not going to think about anything else until that day comes. How prestigious is the Ring of Honor World Championship compared to other belts in the wrestling industry, in your mind? I certainly think it's one of the top prizes in pro wrestling. One of the things that has made Ring of Honor stand out from everything else is its focus on the in-ring action. You know that Ring of Honor's main focus, their main claim to fame is some of the best wrestling from bell to bell in the world. And you look at some of the guys that have held the belt in the past, whether it's Jay Lethal or Jay Briscoe, or Mike Elgin, or Adam Cole, and then even before then, CM Punk, Seth Rollins, all of these guys that have held this championship, their main focus was what happened in between the ropes, between the belts, when the bell rang. And so if I get an opportunity to add my name to that list, it would certainly be the culmination of a long, storied career, and certainly be one of my most prized possessions and my prized accomplishments. So what are you doing to gear up for that match? I haven't changed my game plan. I mean, I'm training, I'm watching tape, I'm studying my opponents and just doing my very best. I do the homework because that's my thing. My main advantage over many of the people that I wrestle these days is my experience. So I go into every match possibly being a slower wrestler or a weaker wrestler, but certainly in terms of experience, I've always got the edge. So I put that to my advantage and wrestle smarter than the people that I'm in the ring against. And so that's always been my goal is to do the homework and figure out no matter who I'm in the ring against, what are my strengths. And now to change the gear, you've wrestled so many people in the wrestling world throughout your career. What is the one person that you haven't wrestled who's still currently active that you want to match with? There's plenty of guys. The majority of the guys on the WWE roster at this point, unless I wrestle them on the Indies, I probably won't get an opportunity to work just with the situation. Certainly the first guy that comes to mind is Chris Jericho, someone that I 
looked up to in terms of his accomplishments and his mentality towards wrestling. I felt like he was a perfect blend of athletics and entertainment, and certainly I strive to have that same sort of blend in my work. He was always someone that I wish I had the opportunity to work with to pick his brain because he had a knack for reinventing that second to none. Even the stuff that he's doing now is top-notch. He would have been someone that I would have loved to have had the opportunity to wrestle with. And now you're a veteran in the industry. What advice do you have for people who want to get into wrestling and involved in the industry? Be prepared for the hardest endeavor you'll ever endure. That's so very difficult. I tell guys, first of all, go to a school, very reputable school. You want to go to a place that's run by people that have been where you want to be. So you look for someone like a Lance Storm or a Team 3D Academy in Florida or the Ring of Honor School in Pennsylvania. These guys that have been at the top or have been working full-time, if that's your goal, that's who you want to learn from is people that did that. Once you go through that school and you get that training, once you're ready to wrestle, my advice is to go out and wrestle as many different places as you can against as many different opponents as you can because it's that variety and forcing yourself to wrestle outside your comfort zone that polishes you as a product. So when you get comfortable enough to wrestle someone that you met for the very first time and wrestle a great match with them a few hours later, that's, like I said, when you become a commodity to a promoter. That's the goal is to become a commodity to a promoter. And that's the main goal for wrestlers in my eyes is to work so hard and get to be so good that promoters can't help but notice your talent and want you on their show. And then finally, after speaking to you for, for so much and covering so much of your career, and we didn't even scratch the surface, in my opinion at least, but do you have anything you'd like to promote? Facebook, Twitter, website, events, signings, anything in that realm, comic books? The new comic book, All Yeah Comics Team Up Number 1, is now available not just on Comixology, but also at aiacomics.com and at Ring of Honor Live Events and at rohwrestling.com. You can follow me on Twitter at FAC Daniels. Um, that's where I keep my fans updated on most of the stuff going on, but those are the two big goings on right now is the world title match and the comic book coming out. Pick those up where you can, and thanks for following along. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode, and thank you to my guest, Chris Daniels, who is the new Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion. And as always, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, as well as you can follow us on Twitter at PopAnimeComics, as well as check out our website, PopAnimeComics.com. And we currently have a Patreon going on. Every donation helps to keep this podcast up and running, as well as you can leave us a review on iTunes to let people know what a wonderful show we have and who we are and what we're doing and how much you're enjoying it because it really does help. And I will be taking a two-week break, and I will be back on April 9th with Chris Ryle, the Chief Creative Officer of IDW. So until then, everybody have a wonderful two weeks, and I will see you on April 9th.